Well, as mentioned, this is the final Sunday in our winter preaching series that we've titled Life with the Spirit of God. If you're just joining us, we've been devoting sermons on Sunday mornings and evenings to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. As the series unfolded, much of what has been taught has been in the realm of really reintroduction or reminders of essentials and clarifying misconceptions. And this morning, we're going to be considering the Spirit's vital role in the day-to-day life of the Christian, the Spirit's role in basic Christian living, our essential existence. I want to start by telling you a story from a news article in 2003. The story is of a blind man who had been without sight for 43 years and then had his vision restored. He had lost his eyesight when he was three due to a chemical explosion. And then 40 years later, thanks to advances in biotechnology and medicine and other things, he was able to undergo a procedure that restored his vision. It's an amazing procedure and it had amazing result, but the impact on his life was unexpected. He was not actually able to immediately proceed through life in the same way that those of us who've had eyesight for our entire lives would be able to. It turns out image recognition requires time and learning. The visual pathways in his brain needed to be re, re, re-trailblazed, if you will. Interestingly, his day-to-day behavior, the habits of his daily tasks, they did not immediately change. In fact, they didn't later change. Because as he said, he didn't really want them to change. He reported that even years after his sight-restoring procedure, that he still walked like a blind man. Quote, if I was using my eyes for mobility, he said, I'd have to be looking all the time. Is that a shadow? Is that a curb? And it would be so much hard work. It's amazing. That was the response. But what he discovered was that he actually preferred making his way through life using his long-learned blindness skills rather than his newfound vision. He had been given freedom. For example, freedom from restricted walking. He was free to look where he pleased, to walk without the aid of a cane, to see a curb, to, to avoid a curb, to cross a street, to walk where he wished. But he actually preferred the restriction of walking in old patterns. He preferred feeling his way down the street instead of making the decisions required of him based on the visual inputs that he was receiving and needing to learn. He actually preferred what he saw as the security of a decision made by the tap of his white cane, telling him to stop over learning to walk based on what he was free to see. He had been given sight and the freedom that came with it, but he still walked like a blind man. And that story provides an illustration for the situation that Paul was dealing with in his letter to the Galatian churches. The Galatian churches were facing a crisis of faith, and Paul writes to them with great urgency and great boldness, warning them against falling away from Christ. Their crisis, the role of the law in their Christian lives. False teachers had come and disrupted the church. They proclaimed a message that Paul actually says in the letter was another gospel. 
They were insistent that the Galatians receive circumcision in adherence to the Mosaic law as an essential part of their faith. Evidently, they had also encouraged or even required the observance of other ceremonial days on the calendar and other observances that were a part of the law. In the midst of their false teaching, they had actually attacked Paul, questioning the legitimacy of his apostolic authority, the legitimacy of his gospel. These Galatian Christians had miraculously received new sight by the Spirit of God, but they were now in danger of walking as if they were still blind. And so Paul pens Galatians as an urgent response. And a major part of his response to them is letting them know that the Spirit of God, which they were given at their salvation, is the key to walking in their freedom and walking in holiness. They didn't need to walk as if they were blind because they had been given the Spirit. If you haven't yet, please take your Bibles and find Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. In this letter, Paul deals with questions regarding justification and questions regarding sanctification. Justification, right? That is a Christian's legal, objective, right standing before God. Questions like, are works of the law necessary to be declared not guilty and righteous by God? Sanctification, that is a Christian's spiritual transformation, which results in their increase in holiness and Christ-likeness. Questions in response to that are, are the works of the law necessary to be holy after one is saved, to grow in holiness? Do they need to take circumcision and observe ceremonial days in order to please Christ as they waited on his return? And Paul's answers on both of those fronts or to both of those questions is that works of the law are not necessary for justification or sanctification. In fact, not only were they unnecessary, he tells the Galatians that taking works of the law as a basis for justification or sanctification would take them away from the benefits of Christ. They would reveal spurious faith. It would be abandoning the gospel. And in contrast to both the flesh and the law or the works of the law as a means of right standing or holiness... After salvation, Paul says, no, the Spirit of God is how you walk, not the law. He tells them spiritual life actually began by the Spirit in chapter 3, verse 2. The Galatians at conversion had received the Spirit of God by hearing with faith. This was in the initial unfolding of a promise that God had made through the prophets that in the new covenant era, he would include his Spirit with the new heart enabling his people to walk in his ways. Ezekiel 36, 27, Jeremiah 31, 33. The age of that promise had dawned and they had received the spirit as a promise. And so Paul asked them in response to their challenge, chapter three, verse three, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you now going to be made into Christ's likeness in his image? Are you going to be conformed to him? Are you going to grow in holiness by the works of the law, by the power of your own flesh? To the contrary, then Paul responds with a lot of argumentation, but in short, in chapter 5, verse 5, he says that we believers, 
through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting on the hope of righteousness. It is the Spirit of God that sustains life between conversion and eternity. Believers anticipate the final declaration of what already tr- is already true, that we're, you're already righteous in Christ, right? Not by works of the law, but by faith, and you await that final declaration from the Lord of righteousness in eternity, empowered by the Spirit, hoping in faith, trusting him for guidance, leadership, and direction. And with that as a bit of a running start, look at chapter 5, verse 13. Paul, we may say he summarizes one of his main arguments in verse 13 when he says, for you were called to freedom. The Spirit's calling was to freedom, not bondage to the law. Paul was responding there to legalism, actual legalism, not what sometimes we incorrectly call legalism. Sometimes we like to call, you know, Christian effort to be holy and separate from sin is legalism. That's not legalism. Legalism is literally trying to earn your righteousness by following rules, concepts, law, thinking you earn your way before the Lord. That's legalism. Paul deals with that here, and he says, you weren't called to bondage the Spirit giving you freedom. And that was the main danger facing the Galatian church, not simply for justification, but for sanctification. But it wasn't the only danger. In verse 13, he also turns his attention to another devastating error, and that was a license or libertinism. He says, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Freedom from the law in Christ was not to be an occasion for sin. That's the opposite of why they were set free. You aren't set free to justify sin. That's what he's saying. Then he goes on and says, ironically, you are actually set free from the law and the dominion of sin so that you can be enslaved to love and to the service of others. And just as a side note, you'll notice throughout the verses we're going to look at today, there's a lot of relational language, and we're not going to be able to unpack all of that. We're considering broader concept there, but it's interesting that all of this dense theological teaching about the Spirit's role in the life of a Christian comes in the midst of a church that had conflict, apparently. And so Paul applies his teaching about the Spirit's work in the life of Christians to relational dynamics in the church. We don't want to miss that as we're thinking through implications in our own lives. So for freedom, the Spirit had called them. But freedom was not to be license for sin. So as we come to verse 16, a couple more questions come up. Well, if there's no law to perfect me in Christ's likeness, then how do I know how to live? How do I know how to live, how to behave, how to, how to be Christ-like, if not by the law? On the other side, if I'm completely free... How do I guard against what Paul warns? How do I guard against my freedom becoming license if I don't have law to constrain me? And Paul's answer to both of those questions comes in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. That's the answer. The answer to the tendency to desire law as a way of knowing that we're walking righteously and the answer to the desire to have law to constrain us from license is walk by the Spirit. That's the focus of Paul in verses 16 through 25. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. In these verses, God sets before us the centrality of the Spirit in our day-to-day Christian life. They teach that the Spirit empowers us to overcome the continuing power of the flesh and enables true obedience. The instruction in this passage tells us how to live, how to live as Christians, how to walk with the freedom and new sight that we've been given. And I believe the instruction here is to really clarify foundational issues, that is our ongoing struggle with sin, and to motivate then our pursuit of holiness. We're going to organize our look at this section of Galatians around three assertions, three assertions about the Spirit's enablement that motivate our pursuit of holiness. Just to let you know how good our deacons of finance in this church are, I was told by one whose name rhymes with Jordan that I actually have six assertions that I'm trying to get for the price of three. So I'll let you all be the judge of that. But I think he's right. Three assertions about the Spirit's enablement. And the first one comes in verses 16 through 18. That's the Spirit's enablement is effective and sufficient. The Spirit's enablement is effective and sufficient. Verse 16 says, walk by the Spirit. Walk here as you probably well know, is simply how you live. It denotes the conduct of your life, what characterizes your life. It's a different term than what we see down in verse 25. I'm going to file that away until we get there. But walk here and walk in verse 25 are different terms. Here, it simply denotes the conduct that characterizes your life. Paul says life is to be lived or you're you're to conduct your life by the Spirit which means in accordance with him, regulated by him, in submission to him, under his control. Now, sometimes we interpret verse 16 as if the second half is, a, is also a command, but it's not. It's an assurance. We could call it a promise. Paul says that the result of walking or living by the Spirit is that we won't carry out the desires of the flesh. And here we're introduced to a conflict that's going to be further explained in the remaining verses, the conflict between the spirit 
and the flesh. Flesh can mean different things depending on the context. And in our context, it's not simply referring to humanity, the the material part of who we are. If we say humanity created in the image of God is material and immaterial, flesh here isn't simply referring to the material part of our being. It's referring to humanity in opposition to God. That is our fallen nature and our propensity towards sin. Sometimes we refer to a sin nature. The NIV actually translates this term as sin nature and uses that instead of flesh. And and that's okay, but we have to be careful because when we start talking about natures, we can sort of devolve into talking as if there's a good dog and a bad dog that are fighting inside of us, that we have the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other, and they wage war, and we're sort of watching. That's not what's being taught here. The flesh is you. Flesh is me. And the spirit is a spirit of God that sets God's holy and righteous desires against the sinful desires that remain in our mortal bodies. The flesh denotes the old characteristics of unredeemed humanity. The conflict is God's spirit versus the flesh, not spiritual us fighting with unspiritual us. That's important. So the conflict is introduced, but the astounding assertion in this verse is a promise. Paul says that the certain result of walking by the Spirit is holiness. This is assurance that in Christ, because of the Spirit's enablement, we can obey. We don't have to sin. We will sin. Paul's going to go on. There's a conflict. But we don't have to. We're no longer in bondage to sin. This says that when we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the passions of our sinful flesh. That is to say the Spirit is effective over and against our sinful desires. And there's assurance here that the gift of the Spirit that was given to us at salvation, God himself taking up residence with us and enabling us means that we don't have to carry out our sinful desires. Now, verse 17 provides the basis for verse 16, which we may say it this way. It helps us see the reason why we're called to walk by the Spirit. Verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. The intentions of of our sinful flesh are in opposition to the purposes of God and the spirit who indwells true Christians is against those fleshly desires. And this, Paul says, that's why we must walk by the spirit. There's a conflict. Our flesh doesn't want to do what God has called us to do naturally apart from the spirit's enablement. So we're to side with the spirit, to to follow after the spirit Because apart from his work in us and apart from walking after him, we stand in opposition to God. Our desires are opposed to sanctification. Our desires are opposed to holiness and Christ-likeness. So this conflict that exists, that's why we're called to walk by the Spirit. Now the next clause in verse 17 is somewhat challenging to understand. He says, this happens so that you may not do the things that you please. Well, he can't be teaching that the Christian life is just one of constant frustration. 
And he can't be teaching that because just above, he says, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. So this can't mean that our life is just one of perpetual frustration where we can never obey, but we never feel comfortable not obeying because of the Spirit's work in our lives. That's not what he's saying. You may experience frustration amidst the conflict, but that's not what this verse is teaching. It seems to be communicating that there's no neutrality here, that because of the conflict, you're not going to do what you want. The Spirit's against the flesh, the flesh against the Spirit. There's only two sides here. There's a push and a pull. There's a Godward push, there's a fleshly pull, and vice versa. The point here is that we're involved in a war, a war between our flesh and the Spirit of God. And Paul in verse 16 calls us to engage, engage in the battle, engage in the warfare on the right side. Now, verse 18 then brings a contrast and in some ways reiterates what he says in verse 16. So in contrast to this conflict, he says, the Spirit is sufficient. Look at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Led here, directed, or influenced by, I think it's used synonymously with walk there, slightly different nuance, but the same sort of reality under the Spirit's influence. And here it's not necessarily talking about situational leading, though we know from Pastor Adam's sermon that the Spirit does lead us situationally in terms of plans for life and other things that we may consider neutral. Here it's talking about leading in with regard to either sin or righteousness, Paul has already said that those under the Spirit's influence will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And now he says that those who are under the Spirit's influence are not under law. And throughout Galatians, Paul uses the term law polemically. He's using it to argue against the abuses of the false teachers. That's important that we know that. Paul says the law is good. There is not a flaw in God's God-given commandments that reveal his moral will and character, right? They had a purpose. As the New Testament era came, that purpose changed, and that teaching is clear in Scripture. But they're not bad in and of themselves. So what he's saying throughout Galatians, he's, he's attacking the law as a means of justification or sanctification. That is a misuse of the law because of the sinful flesh. When he does this throughout Galatians, he talks about the superiority of being in Christ and no longer being under the condemnation that comes from the law. Chapter 3, verse 10, he says that being under law is to be under a curse. Chapter 3, verse 22, to be under law is to be under sin. Chapter 4, verse 3, to be under law is to be enslaved. And it was to those under law, it was those of us under law that needed to be redeemed by the Son of God. That Galatians 4, 4 says, who came, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Being under the law means you're in need of redemption. And so here he says that if you are led by the Spirit, you're no longer under law. I think the point here is that this invites the Galatians and us to consider either you are led by, directed by the Spirit, living by His influence, right, or under law, not both. The Spirit's enablement is sufficient. It's not the Spirit plus law. If you're led by Him, you're not under the law. You're no longer in that category. This then teaches us that the law is not the answer to the struggle, 
to the conflict, to the flesh-spirit battle that's raging? The answer is still the spirit. Yes, there's a struggle, a mighty struggle, but he's emphasizing the spirit is sufficient. Rules cannot overcome sinful passion. They can't change the heart. They can be a guard, a protection. They can help guide, but they can't change the passions of our heart. You're not under the law as your master if you have the spirit of God. The law can't change your heart. Being led by the spirit means you're not under law. He's sufficient for heart change and sufficient to remove you from the condemnation that comes from the law. His influence is sufficient. So in these first three verses, Paul portrays this theological reality that all of us probably know by experience. There's an internal struggle, a conflict, a battle. In God's wisdom, we are not immediately glorified at conversion. That's what we want. That would be easy. But as we just sang, right, our joy will be the better. We'll, our, our, the, the praise and the glory that we give to the Lord will be the better when we're with him for eternity for having walked through the difficulties now. It's in his wisdom that we're not glorified at conversion. We're saved. We're decisively made righteous. Slavery to sin and death is absolutely eliminated. But we still have tendencies and passions that are against God. And we want automatic obedience. We want instant sanctification, and yet Paul tells us here to expect conflict. And if we're not listening closely and paying careful attention, we may take this as a hard saying, a, a discouragement, a difficult teaching devoid of comfort, but that's to miss Paul's point. He's writing to people who are looking for earthly solutions to this conflict, and it was putting them further and further away from victory. And he says, you have the spirit of God and that living by the spirit is how you put to death the deeds of the flesh. Walk by the spirit, you will not carry out the passions of the flesh. Because of the spirit's enablement, we can walk in obedience rather than in bondage to the flesh. This is encouraging news. It's assurance that the spirit is effective in the life of a believer and sufficient. You don't need the law. And that should motivate the pursuit of holiness. After hearing that, we may ask, but how do we know? How do we know we're walking with the Spirit? If we're not under law, how do we know that we're not carrying out the deeds of the flesh? Well, Paul's going to go on and answer that question. The works of the flesh are obvious, and the fruit of the Spirit is evident. We don't need the law to reveal to us whether we're walking the right way or not. It will be apparent. Look at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Contrast, but the fruit of the Spirit is. And against those things, there is no law. He's bringing us to our second assertion about the Spirit's enablement, which is the Spirit's enablement is obvious and righteous. His enablement is obvious and righteous. Now, it's, it's tempting when we're here to get bogged down in these lists. But I believe Paul is simply trying to show that where we are in the conflict is apparent. It's obvious. It's a natural question. If, if we're to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, we won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. That takes us out from under the bondage of the law. But how do we know that we're doing it? 
And Paul says, it's obvious. It's obvious which side of the conflict you're siding with. So we're not left to wonder. The passions that are against the Spirit are obvious. We don't need another resource. Similarly, the fruit produced by the Spirit that's effectively and sufficiently guiding the life of the believer is evident. They're conspicuous. We don't have to guess. No law is needed to discern such fruit. Now, on these lists, neither list, not the the works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit, is intended to be comprehensive. We can see that just by reading it. There are species and types of sin that are not listed here. Similarly, there are avenues of righteousness that are not listed under the fruit of the Spirit. But again, Paul's intention was not to be highly technical. Some of the language for both the sin and the fruit of the Spirit, they even overlap. They're, They're very similar. He says things like these. So it's more than just the list. But what's the list? Briefly. Immorality. This denotes all manner of sexual sin. Impurity. It's defiling behavior. Impure behavior. Often paired with immorality to denote sin of a sexual nature. Sensuality. That's a lack of restraint. Flaunting sexuality. Idolatry. Worship of anything that's not God. Putting anything in God's place besides him. You have pagan cultures with actual idolatry and then you have cultures like ours where we manufacture idols that we don't actually bow to externally, but we do internally. Sorcery, magic, means to control or bring about things that we want apart from God. Enmities, hatred, and behaviors that display hatred toward others. Strife, contention between people. Jealousy, desire for attention, honor or glory that others have that we want. Outbursts of anger, uncontrolled temper, fits of rage, disputes, selfish ambition, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, and disrupting unity, behavior that disrupts unity, which is related then to factions, which is groups of people that sort of faction themselves from the body in order to create division, to self-identify, envying, a desire to possess what others have. Drunkenness. Drunkenness. Carousing. Partying. Excessive eating, drinking, sexually immoral behavior. It was regularly a part of the culture to which Paul wrote. Now, the nature of this list is not just so-called big external sins. And without getting into all the weeds, it's important for us to note that. Paul includes sins that may be a subtle part of disharmony in the body of Christ. And he puts those alongside sexual morality and drunkenness. He's teaching us that even those subtle sins that can disrupt unity here should be seen and called out based on their origin, which is the flesh, clearly not produced from the spirit. At the end of verse 21, he issues a warning. He says, I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you. So he's reiterating something that he had already told the Galatians when he was with them. That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do such things or those who practice such things, it denotes what characterizes one's life. 
Paul's saying if your life is characterized by the deeds of the flesh, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is a stern warning. And it's instructive for us to see that Paul saw absolutely no problem with warning professing believers about conduct that would render them unfit for the kingdom. That's important. I mean, we're in a letter where Paul is talking about basic, deep gospel realities, justification by faith alone, sanctification by faith, even the work of the Spirit over and against the effort of man on his own, and yet he warns those who claim Christ and says, if these are the habit of your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He warned professing believers about those things that would reveal they may not be truly saved. And such warnings are heard by true believers, and that's a call to assess life, to repent where necessary, because those who will inherit the kingdom of God don't don't allow these things to get to the point where they're an unmitigated, unhindered, unchanging, unhalting pattern. You say, why? Because of the Spirit. Because of the Spirit that granted life to you and who rages against the deeds of the flesh. Now, in contrast to the deeds of the flesh, which are obvious and can be observed, again, that's Paul's point, is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, fruit denotes that which the Holy Spirit produces in the lives of Christians. You say, well, of course. Well, sometimes we think that the fruit are these attitudes or behaviors or virtues that super-Christians are called to pursue to sort of distinguish themselves from all of the normal Christians. But here Paul says, no, if you're spirit-led, then these fruit will be evident in your life because they're spirit-produced. It's actually not a command to go and pursue these things. There are other places in the New Testament that tell us that. But here he's saying these things will be evident in your life if you're walking by the Spirit. This is what the Spirit produces in those whom he's leading. These are the obvious evidences. Love. Love for God, love for others, self-giving, love that starts with God, right? We love because he first loved us. Love, the preeminent Christian virtue. Joy, settled pleasure in God. Peace, harmony with God because of salvation and resulting harmony with others. Remember, think relational conflict in this context. He's certainly talking about peace in the body of Christ. Patience, endurance toward others, endurance in circumstances. Kindness, we think graciousness, generosity toward others in recognition of the generosity and graciousness that we've received from God himself. Goodness, moral excellence, faithfulness, being dependable, trustworthiness. Gentleness, that's Christ-like humility in response to others. Gentle, he was gentle. Self-control is self-restraint. We come to the end of verse 23, and it says something somewhat surprising. Against such things, there is no law. And it's surprising to see that here, but again, let's remember the context Those who were harassing the church, questioning Paul, telling them they needed the law, were proclaiming the necessity of the law, specifically external observances, circumcision, festivals, and other things, as marks of righteousness. 
So Paul here asserts, no, the Spirit's fruit that he produces in your life, that's righteous. There's no law against these things. They're righteous. He can be trusted to produce righteous fruit in the lives of those who are walking in him. So whether one is walking by the Spirit or the flesh is obvious. That's his point. And the Spirit's enablement in our lives, that's how we know that we're walking because his fruit is there. And the fruit that he produces is righteous. We don't need the law to know how we're walking with him. We have righteous fruit that manifests itself in the lives of those who are being led by the Spirit. Again, he doesn't say manufacture these fruit in order to walk by the Spirit. He says these fruit are the evidence that you are walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. There are some important warnings for us here, I think, as we look at these things. Obviously, we blitz through the list. Um, seen brothers in other churches that preach about 15 sermons take two of those things a week and go, and there's a place for that, just not this morning. But when we think of the, the list of vices or sins, I want to be reminded of what Paul said back up in verse 13. Some Christians like to make proclamations of their own freedom without attention to the warnings of Scripture. And let us just reiterate, you are not free in Christ to sin. You are not free in order to justify sin. And Paul makes that clear. Your freedom is not to be used for an occasion for the flesh. More than that, the deeds of the flesh evidenced in your life, unbroken patterns, those, will, those who exhibit such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Freedom must not be perverted into an opportunity for the flesh. Additionally, I would say we, we need to stop and think more often about the fruit of the Spirit. So we can be tempted to sort of create our own, our own markers of maturity. We see in the, the fruit of the Spirit, he says, these things are obvious in your life. Others should see these things. And we can subtly, especially in church contexts, come up with churchy things that we use to sort of demonstrate our maturity and ignore these very obvious fruit. What do I mean by that? I know maybe you lead a Bible study. You, you do this avenue of service. You're active in this way. You, you're committed to this category of Bible knowledge or something like that. And that's your mark. Well, that can be a very good mark. But such things devoid of, the, of these fruit, of the manifestations of the fruit, would reveal you're not actually walking by the Spirit. You're hiding the desires of the flesh behind other outward manifestations that you're using to justify your life of immaturity. Similarly, they can be more deceptive. What about criticism in the name of discernment? Or gossip masquerading as soul care? Be careful with those things. We look at such things as marks of maturity. I'm discipling somebody, and for the purpose of prayer, let me tell you all of their business. That's sin. That's not a fruit of the Spirit. Being critical of everything you hear under the name of discernment, because you're the final arbiter of truth in a context where a lot of other people aren't necessarily seeing what you're seeing, but never mind them. You have a corner on the truth. That's not a fruit of the Spirit. Beware of allowing churchy-type things in church context to let us be deceived about the marks of maturity. Paul says the Spirit, the fruits 
the Spirit's fruit, it's obvious. Your brothers and sisters in Christ should see these in your life. And if the so-called fruit we claim reveals our maturity, but it's not apparent to others, then we need to go back here and we need to evaluate whether we're sowing to the Spirit or to the flesh. On the positive side, these verses, they assure us, again, that it's not a mystery. We don't have to wonder, am I really being led by the Spirit? Did I get the right sensation during the church service to know that that was the Spirit's impulse? No, the fruit are obvious. That's what he says. They're evident. It's not a mystery. We don't have to wonder if we're really walking by or being led by the Spirit. So the Spirit's enablement is effective and sufficient. When we conduct ourselves in accordance with his desires, we will not indulge sinful desires. He is all we need. His enablement is obvious and righteous. Evidences of how we're living are not hard to find. If by the flesh there's obvious manifestations, but we can know we're walking by the Spirit because he produces fruit in our life and he produces righteous fruit. And now in verses 24 and 25, Paul reminds believers of the definitive work of grace accomplished by God at the start of the Christian life. And that then is a basis, again, for another call for Christians to follow after the Spirit as they progress through the Christian life. Listen to verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also walk by the Spirit. And in these two verses, we find our third and final assertion about the Spirit's enablement, and that is that the Spirit's enablement is definitive and practical. It's definitive and practical. In verse 16, Paul, right, he asserts that those who walk in the Spirit will not carry out the deeds of the flesh, will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now here, he asserts that Christians have in fact already crucified the flesh with its passions. He says those who belong to Christ, which is just a sweet designation and reminder for us. We're Christ's. If you have the Spirit, you're Christ. You belong to him. And those who are his have crucified the flesh. And this echoes Paul's own testimony from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When Paul refers there to this crucifixion, he's talking about the the Christian transformation that happened at conversion through union with Christ. The old self enslaved to sin and under law has been decisively done away with. Similarly, here in verse 24, that's what he's talking about again. There's been a fundamental change in nature. Again, remember, it's not old nature, new nature, two parts of us warring. You do have fundamentally a new nature. There's been an essential change. What is that essential change? Well, you're no longer enslaved to passion and lust. You're no longer ruled by those passions. Why? Well, because of what we've been saying, you have the Spirit of God. And you have new desires in what is called in scripture, a new heart. So when you received the spirit, when we received the spirit through faith and began our Christian life, this decisive, definitive separation from the flesh and its passions happened. So Paul takes that, which we may say synonymous with verse 25, living by the spirit. And he says, if that's true, 
if we live by the Spirit, if the lusts of the flesh have been decisively, definitively put to death at the cross of Christ, then we must keep in step with the Spirit. And that's verse 25. The NES says, let us also walk by the Spirit. I think keep in step with the Spirit is the NIV translation. It actually captures the meaning of this term with more clarity than what we see in verse 16. Because again, it's a different term than what we have in verse 16 for walk. So you have walk in verse 16, led in verse 18, live in verse 24, which I think refers to the position that we have in Christ, that we've been made alive in him. He's not talking about being led or walking there. He's talking about what we are because the spirit has regenerated our hearts. We have new life. But if we have that new life, he says, be conformed to follow after the spirit. That's what it means to keep in step with the spirit. Follow after him. Be conformed to him. Pursue holiness. And like Paul does in many of his letters, like we've seen in Ephesians with Pastor Rick, Paul connects our position and our practice in these verses tightly. We have what are often called, right, indicative realities. That is, those things that are true of us because of what God has done in his redemptive work. And those realities are to form the way we see life and proceed through life as we walk through it. We could say maybe verse 25 this way, if we claim Christ, if we live by the Spirit, if we've been saved, if we've been <laughs> regenerating, and it's true of us, then we have no other choice but to be aligned with the Spirit's desires. To this original audience, Paul was putting a question out there. If this is true of you, then you can't walk according to the law. You must keep in step with the Spirit. And it put to them a question, right? Because that was their temptation. Should I abandon this gospel of faith, this, this sanctification by faith even, this life of spirit enablement and dependence for the works of the law. He says, no, if you've been given new life in the spirit, walk after him. That is, keep in step with him. So we see that the spirit's enablement is definitive. The flesh with its passions and desires has been definitively dealt with at the cross. But it's also practical as a result of that decisive work that happened at the cross, we can live daily in a fruitful way that accords with his desires. As Paul moves on from here and starts to close his letter, he brings this up again, this theme. And that shows that really the course, the whole course of the Christian life can be summed up this way. He, he kind of uses it, he, well, he does use a different metaphor later. He says, don't be deceived, chapter 6, verse 7. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now listen to the language. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. What's he talking about? He's talking about endurance in walking after the Spirit, sowing to the Spirit to reap the final reward when we meet Christ for all eternity. How do we reach the finish line? By walking in, by being led by, by keeping in step with, by sowing to the Spirit, the Spirit who's the pledge of our eternal inheritance. Paul's instruction in these verses is foundational 
for how we see our Christian life. Foundational. New life has brought about a conflict, but God amazingly, and it's actually, it's almost so easy to say this. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his spirit and assures us that the practical day-to-day resource we need to walk in obedience, to put sin to death, to pursue holiness, to be conformed to Christ, he's given us that in his spirit. He's enabled us with that. And because of his enabling presence, we're free and empowered to walk in holiness. I want to suggest in closing just a few opportunities for personal appropriation. I mean, what's the application of this text? Walk in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Keep in step by the Spirit. And there's communication and conversation you have in care groups and with one another about what that looks like. But in addition to that, I just want to suggest one is simply this, rejoice. Rejoice. Can you imagine if this was the message, conversion? You're saved. You've been given new life in Christ. Congratulations. Welcome to the family. Here are the 613 Old Testament commands you need to live by. Good luck. I hope you make it. Paul says that that is not what happens because we've been given God himself through his spirit, and enabled to live in a way that accords with our heavenly calling. We should rejoice in that. Additionally, cultivate humility and thanksgiving. R.A. Torrey says this, the conception of the Holy Spirit as a divine influence or power that we're to somehow get a hold of and use, that that leads to self-exaltation and self-sufficiency. But if we once grasp the thought that the Holy Spirit is a divine person of infinite majesty, glory, and holiness, and power, who in marvelous condescension has come and takes possession of our lives and makes use of them, it will put us in the dust and keep us in the dust. I can think of no thought more humbling or more overwhelming than the thought that a person of divine majesty and glory dwells with me and is ready to use even me. The text of this passage of Scripture should humble us in thanksgiving that God has given us himself as enablement for all we need to do what he's called us to do. And lastly, cultivate dependence. You are just as dependent upon grace for your sanctification as you were for your conversion. You are just as dependent upon God's work in your life, the transforming work of his spirit in your life for obedience as you were when you were called from death to life at conversion. And that dependence can manifest itself in many ways. Prayer, asking the Lord to do what he has said that he will do in us, seeking of counsel and a myriad of other ways. But dependence is the disposition of those who recognize that we have the Spirit's enablement and we're called to walk after him, not to trust our own flesh.